Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne again. Lord, to worship you. For you have gathered a people. You gave a people to Christ before the foundation of the world. That they may be holy and blameless before you. And this, your son Jesus Christ came and accomplished their redemption. He paid for their redemption. He made a complete payment of what was required by the law of God. What was required by the law of perfection. That they also may be accepted before you. And we praise you and thank you for your son Jesus Christ who is our only hope of salvation. Who is salvation? And we thank you for the accomplished work in Christ. And we thank you that we are not consumed because of our sin. And as we go into your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you would open the scriptures to us that we may see the Jesus that has saved us. That we may hear more about the Savior of the world, that we may hear more about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we go into the book of John chapter 4, Lord, we seek your blessing as we learn more about what is worship and how to approach you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 19 to 26. John chapter 4, verses 19 to 26. We are still in the story of the Samaritan woman and her encounter with the Lord. And we continue the conversation. We know what has preceded this part of the chapter. The Lord Jesus Christ has met this woman at the well. He is... On his way to Galilee from Judea. And he has to pass through Samaria. Because he has a divine appointment with his elect from among the Gentiles. He has an appointment with his people. And he has always had an appointment with all his people. God does not come to you. Without an appointment. He makes an appointment for the time that he is going to move to you that he may bring you to himself. So every one of us has had an appointment with God when we came to Christ. And we also have, even our time of death is an appointed time. God knows exactly to the second when we will die. So we are talking about the God of appointment. And Jesus is this God of appointment. So in this conversation from verse 19, this is what Apostle John records for us. He says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. The title of our sermon is You Worship What You Do Not Know. You worship what you do not know. This far, Jesus has met with a Samaritan woman to teach her and ourselves about how salvation works as he taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus is teaching. He is meeting with these people that he may teach them about how salvation works. And later on, Jesus is going to give us understanding about what happens after you have been saved. You are not just saved for the sake of salvation, but you are being saved that you may know how to approach God. That you may know how to worship God. Because God has to be talked to in a particular way. You just don't show up before God and start talking. Trespassers will be prosecuted. He has a big sign. You cannot trespass and find yourself in the presence of God. You have to approach him in a particular way. And Jesus is going to give us more understanding because he is the son of God and he knows what happens in heaven. And in John 4.10, in John 4.10, Jesus has said this to the woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Christ is saying, if you ask him, he will give you the living water. If you think you don't have the living water, if you know who Christ is, and you ask him for that living water, he will give you the living water. But why living water? This is what Jesus says in John 4, verses 13 and 14. He says, because everyone who drinks of this water, everyone who drinks from this water from Jacob's well, this water from a well made by hands, 
by the hands and effort of sinners. They will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So that is why you want the water that Jesus gives. Jesus here is not just talking about your life now and death. He is talking about the gift of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit and eternity. He is telling you about what has to happen between now and eternity. And he is saying, if you do not have the Holy Spirit in you, you shall forever thirst. So the Lord Jesus here was teaching the way by which sin can be cured. That is the way of salvation and how righteousness and satisfaction can be had by the fallen. We are the fallen. We are the fallen and we need a standing. We are the fallen and we need a standing with God. And how are we going to stand with God? Who is going to raise us up? How are we going to quench our own thirst? Not by our works. No matter how good we think they are, we cannot attain a righteous standing before God by our own goodness. If anything, Jesus himself has to give us his water, the living water, the Holy Spirit. But the woman is confused by what Jesus is saying. As expected. Because she is fleshly. She has to be confused. Jesus is talking about heavenly things as he was talking to Nicodemus. Jesus is talking spiritual things. The woman is thinking, uh, he doesn't have a bucket. He does not have a bucket. Say, you don't have anything with which to fetch. You're out of your mind. Jesus is not talking about water from the well. He is talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus uses her misunderstanding. Jesus uses her misunderstanding to bring her to an understanding of the truth. He uses her misunderstanding to tell her of her real spiritual condition. And so he reminds her of her five ex-husbands, her five marriages, her five failed marriages. And he says, you have had five husbands. And the one that you are living with is not your husband. And this was to bring her to an understanding of her sinful condition. But the woman is not comfortable with Jesus bringing up and opening her secrets. She is not happy with that. So she sought to change the conversation. 
She wants to deflect attention away from herself. Because Jesus is making a discovery of her as he is in the process of disclosing himself to her. So this is what happens when you encounter the true Jesus. You, as you are learning who Jesus is, you are also learning about who you are. So without learning about Jesus, you can never know who you are. So in the process of revealing his sin to her, the Lord was teaching us three major lessons. We have three major lessons that we are going to get from this text. The lesson number one that the Lord brings is that we are in need of the Holy Spirit. We are in need of living water. But not only that, the second lesson is the nature of worship. True worship is not about location. It's not about this place or that place. True worship is about knowing the nature of God. If you know the true nature of God, then you are able to render to him the worship that he deserves. But he also tells us the way to approach God. Because there's only one way that is safe to approach God. There is one way that God hears. God hears all things and he knows all things. But there is a way that he hears like the way that he hears what Christ says to him. That's a different kind of hearing. It's not just a hearing of the ear, but it's a hearing to say you are doing things according to my will. You are doing things that are consistent with who I am. You are doing things that bring my son and myself glory. So drinking the living water is the first process in your being able to worship God in spirit and in truth. Without the living water, you cannot worship God in spirit and in truth. But before we get deeper into that teaching, we know what has happened with the woman and Jesus. The woman has been trying to evade Jesus. She's been trying to change the conversation, but Jesus brings a hammer of a revelation. Jesus brings down a hammer of a revelation so that she would be in the right place that allows her to have a proper relationship with Jesus. She has to discover that she is a sinner and Jesus is her savior. So Jesus has disarmed her and Jesus is able to disarm any man. Don't ever think that when you show up before God, you're going to have a good excuse for anything. There's no good excuse for anything that you ever did. Because if you think you have an, an explanation, 
Jesus will say, no, 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 no. You could have done this. He knows all things and he knows all the best possible ways that you could have done things differently. So you will never be able to run away from his conviction. You can't run away from his conviction. So the Lord has put this woman in a corner when he said to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And we know the response of the woman. She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truthfully. Your sinful condition and lifestyle had been exposed. And when the Holy Spirit comes and exposes our sin, we always tend to have some explanation, some other excuse to try and justify the sin. Or at least to run away from the conversation. Don't bring this up. Don't talk about me. Let's talk about something different. Let's talk about theology. We have some outstanding, unresolved, ancient theological issues between you, the Jews, and us, the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans have a common ancestor. They are all descendants of Jacob. They are descendants of Jacob. But the Samaritans are a half-breed between the Israelites of the northern kingdom and the Assyrian people and the Babylonians and all the surrounding nations that were subordinate nations to the Assyrians and the Babylonians who were shipped, who were shipped into the northern kingdom after the northern kingdom Israel had been taken into captivity. So they have a common background. They both hold to the five books of the Bible. But the Samaritans only hold to the five. The Jews hold to the, the whole Old Testament. So the Jews call the Samaritans heretics. And the Samaritans call the Jews heretics. So no love lost the hatred is mutual. So the woman sought to bring this hot button issue. She seeks to bring this red meat. This is red meat between the two people groups. And it is like politics here. When we have two opposing candidates from different political parties, especially where you know no one agrees with no one. And yet they debate and they consume time and they agree to disagree, but the issues remain unresolved. And yet the candidates both go home at the end of the debate 
without anyone ever yielding an inch to the other. This is what the Samaritan woman is trying to do. She is bringing up this issue, this ancient dispute about the place of worship, hoping that it would cause Jesus to give up on her. That she would not yield anything from her sinful lifestyle. And unfortunately, unfortunately, this does not happen. Jesus does not leave her alone because Jesus is up to getting her. Jesus has to get her. And whatever conversation you start with Jesus, it comes back to Jesus. Whatever conversation you begin with Jesus, it has to end with Jesus if you belong to him because he is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd and he is not losing any of his sheep. So in verse 21, Jesus says to the woman, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So the woman is arguing from tradition. The woman is arguing from tradition because the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerasim and yet the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. And neither group was yielding to Jerusalem being the only place of worship or Mount Gerasim being the place of worship. They did not agree on what was the proper place of worship. So the woman, seeing that Jesus is a prophet, she is starting to see that Jesus is a prophet. So I see that you are a prophet. So instead of telling me about my sins, why don't you then settle this dispute for me? Let's talk about this other dispute. Don't talk about me. The traditions of men. We have long-standing traditions in the church. We have long-standing traditions in the church. And by the time that this woman is there with Jesus, that centuries upon centuries, since this has been going on, and Jesus comes and says, you worship, but you don't know what you're worshiping. And we have a lot of traditions in the church. If they are man-made traditions, it doesn't matter how long they've been around. Jesus still comes and says, yes, I acknowledge. I'll give it to you that you're worshiping, but you are foolish. You don't know what you're worshiping. And to that, the Lord would say to the Jews, you make the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. So the debate then between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is a debate of the primacy of the traditions of man versus the truth of God. Because she is thinking, it's about our tradition. It's about what we believe is the place of worship. And it's not about what God has said about worship. But Jesus says, 
if your worship is not rooted in the word of God, it doesn't matter how long you have been practicing it. It is false. It is false. It does not help you before God. So according to Jesus, true worship is not like in the real estate business where the place or location is very important. In real estate, they say location, location, location. It's all about location. So Sister Sarah Samaritan may have been a real estate agent. She is thinking location. It has to be location. But Jesus says, no, true worship is not about a particular location. It is not about going to Mecca on some pilgrimage journey. And it is not about a particular building. And it is not about the direction in which you face when you're praying. But one time last year, we had some woman who came to visit us. And she said, well, since we are about to pray, from which direction does the sun rise? And I said, it doesn't matter what direction the sun rises. We are not praying to the sun. We are praying to God. You can pray to God in the dark. You don't need to know the direction. You need to know Jesus. And yet that's what many people think. They feel that God has had them because they were looking in the right direction. If you have to look at the right direction, you look at Jesus. Looking at Jesus is always looking at the right direction. But why was the Samaritan woman making a deal of the place of worship? Remember when the Assyrians brought a lot of people back into Israel, they brought all kinds of deities and idols. And these local deities were confined to certain areas and places. So you had a god of the river, a god of the mountain. We have, they were having all kinds of gods who were restricted. They were territorial gods. And so when she meets with Jesus, he was like, um, can you sort this out for me? Sort this one out for me because we Samaritans believe that God can only be reached from this mountain, not in Jerusalem. So she has a pagan understanding of who God is. And that's why when Jesus speaks to her, he teaches her about the nature of God. He says, no, 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 woman. God is spirit. God is spirit. It's not about this mountain or that mountain. So the Lord corrects her theology. She has to understand and you have to understand that the God of Israel is not limited by space, time, or location. He is the omnipresent God, which means he is everywhere at one time and can be 
reached anytime and from anywhere. So the Lord tells her that a time is coming that true worship would no more be about Mount Gerasim or Jerusalem. No more Mount Gerasim or Jerusalem. If it were in, in Zimbabwe, would have a child by the name of No More. No more this mountain. No more. I can tell you that there's probably someone by the name of No More in Zimbabwe. So Brother Robert, if you need another name, you can call your next child No More. No more Jerusalem. No more Mount Gerasim. It was not about the physical address because the time has come, Jesus says, of worshiping God by and in truth through the Spirit. True worship has to be inaugurated for you. A time has to come when God will open the way for you to reach him in the way that he wants to be reached. And this inauguration has to come through the death and resurrection of Christ. A time is coming and now is. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is also saying that all men are worshippers. And are worshipping a lot of things. But none are involved in true worship. Because they do not know their sinful condition. And not only that. They do not understand the requirements of approaching a holy and righteous God. Sinful men do not know the requirements of approaching a God who is holy and righteous. So the Lord says, yes, you worship. Yes, you are engaged in worshiping. But you don't know what you are worshiping. But we, but we, the Jews, I'm thinking here, he's talking about himself first and foremost because he is the son of God and he knows everything about worship. And he says, but we, the Jews, we know what we worship. We know the God that we worship. And guess what? Worshiping happens in the context of salvation. For salvation is from the Jews. So you can't talk about true worship where there's no talk of salvation. And what is Jesus saying there? He is teaching that as you are, you can't just show up before God. You don't even know who God is. You need to be saved that you may render to God the true worship that he demands. So the Lord seeks to teach her that her theological arguments are only coming because she is ignorant of what true worship is and whom to render that worship. He says, yes, I do acknowledge that you are religious, but you are ignorant of what you are worshiping. Jesus says, theology matters. 
in rendering true worship. And now that's a huge statement. Jesus is saying, it's not about what you're doing. It's about what you know about the true God. Theology matters when it comes to worshiping the true God. And of course, if you were to come and tell someone that, yes, I see that you're worshiping, but you don't know what you're worshiping, someone is going to get offended. They'll get offended. They'll go ballistic on you. They'll get mad. What are you talking about? I have the freedom to worship whoever I want. Yes, you have the freedom to worship whoever you want, but you don't know what you're worshiping. There are many in our day who say we are not Christians, but we are just spiritual people. Or I'm spiritual. So because they are spiritual people, they engage in all kinds of spiritual and worship activities, but they worship themselves or other created things. I remember some time ago watching TV. And there's this woman, some celebrity woman. She has a number of kids. And she was saying, at their house, they practice all kinds of religion. That way, the kids will have opportunity to find which religion fits them best. They are worshipping every day. But they know not what. False worship among the heathens. Many religions and peoples claim that they are worshiping God. And yet they do not know the God of the Bible. And they despise the God of the Bible. According to Jesus, if you have to render true worship to God, you have to know the object of your worship. You have to know who it is that you're worshiping. Because when you're worshiping, you are recognizing the perfections of a being. When you're worshiping, you are recognizing the perfections of a being, especially of deity, and extolling their perfections. By worshiping true deity, you are not making them happy or making them better. But many times we approach God like he is a politician who can be bought by special interest people. We approach God as a politician who is running for office and we can sway his mind to and fro depending on how much money we give him. But when you worship the true God, when you worship the true God, you are recognizing that he is better than you. And that you are dependent on him. But even more, that he is the only perfect being. The issue here is not that he is better than you or you are dependent on him, but that he is the only perfect being. So perfection here is the most important thing for you to recognize. The God of the Bible 
is the only perfect being that exists, period. And all creation was made, all creation was made to behold and extol all the perfections of a God who is perfect. And it is only this God who can render to himself the worship that perfection requires. We're going to work this up. Perfection requires and demands recognition. That's a very, very, very important statement because we are going to develop it right now in terms of salvation because a lot of people, a lot of people think that salvation is just God coming and just being merciful because man sinned and that's the end of it. There's a whole lot more to salvation. Salvation is a plan of God to extol his perfection. We have to work that understanding. But going back to my earlier statement that perfection requires and demands recognition. This is when you see people who worship the Hollywood stars, the movie stars, all these athletes and celebrities. What people are saying is they are recognizing some level of perfection and beauty in their idols. So they worship and give recognition to these sinners. And we even heard of people who fainted when they saw their idol. Some people will be crying and fainting at the sight of a sinner who is going to die a few years from now. Why? Because men are worshippers. But they worship what they do not know. But sinners would be helped by reading the book of Job to learn a little about the perfection of the ever-living God. The ever-living God is a perfect being. Listen to Job 25, verses 4 to 6. Job 25, verses 4 to 6. This is what he says. How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight. Did you hear that? The stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man who is a maggot, who is a worm, and a son of man who is a worm. We, we just, like when you see dead things, they're, they're decomposing, God says, that's you right there. Those worms that you see, he says, that's you in the face of me. But listen, what Apostle Paul says of Jesus in 1 Timothy 6, 16 and 17. He says, he alone, he alone, he alone possesses immortality 
and lives in unapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or is able to see to him be honor and eternal power. So you see where you render your worship to the one who is immortal. The one who is invisible. The one who has encased themselves in a light that cannot be approached. That you can't even consider for a split second to look at his face. This one is the perfect being. This one is the one that you have to worship. And this is the one that Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus on his throne. In the temple. In the heavenly temple. Listen to verse 1 to 5 of Isaiah 6. This is what it says. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Have you ever had a train of your robe filling any temple? Even any room? Even you, the ladies, when you were married? Was your gown filling the whole room? The robe of Jesus was filling the temple. And listen to this, verse 2. Seraphim stood above him each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. We have to have six wings if we have to be around perfection. And one called out to another and said, Holy, not one time, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations, listen to this, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, War is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was a prophet of God. When it comes to righteousness in the flesh, you could not come close to Isaiah. But when Isaiah is opened up to the third heavens and he sees the glory of God, he sees his robe, he sees the worship, the angels around Jesus. But if you go and read John 12, John will tell you that this person that Isaiah saw was Jesus. Isaiah saw the Lord and the first thing that he recognized as soon as he saw the Lord, he recognized that he was a sinner. He recognized perfection right there. And he had the angels, the seraphim, night and day, they sing holy, 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 nonstop. They don't sleep. 
because perfection requires recognition all the time. So we are told the angels, the seraphim, they have three pairs of wings. They have one set of wings to cover their feet. They are not walking on ground. This is space. The space that the Lord occupies is holy place. So they have to cover their feet. But not only that, they have to cover their eyes. So they have to use kind of a radar to find their way around the throne because they can't look at the Lord. They have to cover their faces. Why? Because they are in the presence of perfection. And perfection demands recognition in Jesus alone. Now, that is some understanding. Perfection requires and demands recognition in Jesus alone. As I said earlier, the salvation of sinners in Christ is not just some charitable sin relief program and is more than just feed the hungry program. Because if it were the case, Jesus would have died and everyone would have been saved. But we know that Jesus did not save everybody. God did not save everybody. We talked about that last week. Jesus is God and he is able to save everyone. But he does not. Because there's more to salvation than you not going to hell. Salvation is God's plan from eternity to demonstrate his perfection to sinners. By first showing you that you are a sinner and then revealing himself and saving you in his perfect son. The salvation of sinners is not driven by the plight of the sinner, but by the glory of God. Men do not know that. You have to understand that to understand the Bible. You will not understand what God is doing in the Bible if you don't understand the motivation of salvation. The salvation of people is about the glory of God in Christ. Don't ever look at salvation any other way because if Christ is not at the center of understanding salvation, you will never understand the God of the Bible. Fallen man could never have obeyed God. Man, even before they fell, could never have entered heaven so as to possess eternal life. Never. If man could enter heaven by their own good works and their own righteousness, then their perfection would need to be recognized alongside that of God. If you knew have to be able to attain righteousness by yourself, God being the equitable God that he is, 
God is holy, which means he doesn't do anything that is unrighteous. If you can attain righteousness by yourself, then God has no option but to give recognition to what you have done. He has to give recognition to all works of righteousness. He has to. But it doesn't work like that. Because only God shall be glorified. So God determined that the only way that you ever have a righteous standing before him is if he gives you that righteousness. You have to be given his own righteousness. And that's what Jesus has done. So that when you come before God, you come with nothing in your hands, naked. You come before God with nothing but Jesus. That Christ may be exalted for bringing you to heaven where you do not belong. You don't belong to heaven. You belong to hell. But through Jesus, God has moved you from darkness to the kingdom of light. Through Jesus, God has moved you from death to life. Isn't that the language of Jesus? He who believes in the Son of Man has moved from death to life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not in those who are good in themselves, but those who are in Christ Jesus. So righteousness, righteousness is a perfection of God alone. And it has to be put on display. If I am perfect, I have to put my things on display. Look at the very rich and powerful. They always put their words on display. Because they want you to render them worship. And you think God doesn't know about that? You think men are the first ones to recognize worship? God has been worshiping himself from eternity. And if righteousness is a perfection of God, it can only be put on display through the person of Jesus Christ alone. And if eternal life is the life of God, is the perfect life of God alone, then it can only be put on display and it can only be given through Jesus alone. And this is the reason why you are saved by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone. So the aloneness, the alones, <laughs> the alones are there to preserve the perfection of God. That you will know that you are in heaven only because God was pleased to bring you there. None of your perfections are ever going to be celebrated or worshipped by anyone. So then, the fall of man in the garden. But we are a teaching church. This is the truth of God. And if it is the truth of God, this is the only important thing that you actually need to know. 
but everything else doesn't help you. This is life. The fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden was not an accident. That's how it's taught out there. But oh, Adam was so bad, he didn't listen to God, and now we got in trouble, we don't even know what to do. So God went to Jesus and said, well, do you think you can go and save those people? They are so miserable. No, it's not, that's not how it works. If you want to understand how salvation works, you go and read Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 tells you God's plan of redemption. For what reason God saved you and how you became a Christian. You go to Ephesians chapter 1. You have to know Ephesians chapter 1. Some preachers hate Ephesians chapter 1 that they have torn the pages from the Bible. But Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that salvation is the work of God in Christ. And this is an eternal plan that God determined from eternity that those people who are in Christ would only come to him without blemish because of the work of Jesus. So God determined that through the salvation of sinners, he would put on display the perfection of his grace and mercy in Christ towards you. And for that reason, you shall forever be worshiping him. But what we are doing here is we are working the understanding of what it means to worship God. It's not just coming and telling God your laundry list of things. That's not worshiping. That's not praying. It's knowing the plan of God in Christ. God has a single purpose. He has a single plan in Jesus. His glory in Jesus. So God is the only one who knows how to give worship to God. And God worship, he worships himself. And he does not need you to worship him. God has never needed anything from a creature because his name is Jehovah. And what that means is that Jehovah means the self-sufficient one. He doesn't need anything. It's impossible for God to need anything because if he needs anything, he is not God. He is God because he doesn't need anything. We are the ones who need to worship him because he alone is worthy of recognition for perfection. And that is why God has pride. This is the main reason why God has pride. Because when you are being prideful, you are saying, I am self-sufficient in myself. Whatever I am, I am a self-made man. And pride is saying, look at me. I have perfection that demands your recognition. I have perfection that if I had some angels, they would not be looking at me. They would cover their faces and their feet when they see me. That's what you're saying. And God hates that. 
And that's the reason why the devil got in trouble. The devil got in trouble because he said he was going to ascend to the place of the Most High and tried to receive the worship that was due to God alone. So we have to grow in our understanding of salvation as more than just a relief from sin, death, and God's judgment. There is more to salvation than you not going to hell. It is all about the exaltation of Christ as the Son of God and the heir of all things. And hell was not created by accident. Hell did not exist by itself. God created hell. He created it. For what purpose? For his glory. He is the one who sends the devil there and the fallen angels there and all these sinners who go there. It's God who sends them there. He purposes to send people there. But he has also purposed that you are among those of his elect people that he served in Jesus. And how do we know that you are in Jesus? Because you believe in Jesus. Okay? That's the sign that you belong to Christ. You believe in Jesus. And that's what John is teaching us right from the beginning of the chapter all the way to the end of the book of John. So we know that in Romans 9, we read this part of the scripture last week. But Romans 9, 22 and 24, we are told that the work of salvation is designed this way because God is demonstrating his power. The Apostle Paul says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, the power of God has to be known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. You have probably never heard this from a lot of the pulpits. The Apostle Paul here by the Holy Spirit is saying there are some people who are prepared, who are born, that God may send them to hell. Never heard that, but it's in the Bible. It's all over the place. And verse 23 says, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Do you hear that? There are two vessels. Vessels of wrath that God prepared. And we are told in verse 23, the reason why some people go to hell, the reason why some people go to hell is for this reason. He says that he, God, determined to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. So the vessels of mercy were prepared beforehand for glory. And the way that glory outshines is if someone goes to hell. This is not the God that is being preached in a lot of places. But when you see and read the Bible, this is the only God you're going to find. This, you go and read Isaiah. You're going to find the same God. 
Isaiah 45, 7. I create the light and the darkness. All the good and evil things. I, the Lord, do all these things. And God is saying, there are no two gods running the show in this universe. There's only one who sits on the throne. And he does all those things for his own glory. Okay. It doesn't matter the fact that you don't understand it. But God knows what he's doing. But there is also false worship by professing Christians. We have false worship by professing Christians. Because they don't know the true God of the Bible. And instead of coming and, and, and worshiping God for his perfection, for his work in Christ, they reduce worship to their own formulas. And whatever nonsense that is attractive to their flesh as long as they tack the name of Jesus to whatever they say, to whatever they do. We are doing this for Jesus. Single girls for Jesus. Bikers for Jesus. There are many professing Christians who are engaged in activities that only witch doctors and pagans get engaged in. In the name of being spiritual, some things that even some pagans do not even practice is being practiced by many people who call themselves Christians. And people are latching onto anything and everything. And this is why there are so many movements within the church about how to eat, what not to eat, where to eat, how one seeks medical treatment, and what, whether they should do it or not. Whether they educate their children or not. Do they immunize their children or not? Those are personal choices, but it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. People are praying and meditating, not in the word of God, but are practicing a spiritual meditation that opens them up to the fallen spiritual realm without a consideration that this is a no-go area. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Lord forbids witchcraft and divination. Why? Because when you practice divination, you are opening yourself into the spiritual realm. You want to deal with things that the Lord has not allowed you to deal with. And a lot of people are doing that because they think they get connected to God that way. They think they are worshipping God that way. But Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2, Colossians 2, 20-23, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, so Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit says, all this do this, don't do that. Eat this, don't eat that. Are all elementary things. They are things that have no spiritual value. That's what he's saying. 
Why is, if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. So all these things that men are doing are all perishing. They don't give you any spiritual value in the face of Christ. And he says, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are not the teachings of God. These are just men who show up, influential men, they show up and they start teaching all kinds of nonsense. But this is not according to the commandments of God. And he says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. They look like it's wise. They look like you are, they make you look like you're very spiritual. Look at her. Wow, she is so connected to God. But he says, the appearance of wisdom. It appears like it's wise, but there's no wisdom in it. The appearance of wisdom in self-made, self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They're saying, it looks like you're actually going somewhere spiritually. But you're not creating any value whatsoever. If you have food to eat, eat your food and praise God for it. Okay? If the Lord gives you money to buy something, buy it and praise the Lord for it. If you want to buy four pairs of shoes, buy four pairs of shoes and praise the Lord for it. Don't try to create righteousness. Because the Lord says, those are just the commandments of men. <laughs> and the Lord would say to the very same thing, you worship what you do not know. We, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So according to Jesus, people are worshiping. But true worship is not in what you do. It is in the knowledge of who you are worshiping. True worship has to be rendered to a deity to the Father. True worship has an object. You have to know who you are worshiping. So if you have to worship God truly, it's not about doing more things for God. It's about knowing more things about God and Jesus. You want to worship God? Open the Bible. And learn more about Jesus. And God says that's true worship. Okay. And that is why in the church, the apostle Paul taught us in Ephesians chapter 4 about how God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. 
until we attain to the unity of the faith. And listen to this. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. So if anybody calls themselves an evangelist, if anybody calls themselves a pastor or a prophet, the Holy Spirit says it has to be to increase the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, you need to mature in the things of God to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And this is not going to happen to you if I come here and I'm talking about God wants you to be happy. Bring your money. Bring your money to me. And God is going to bless you. Every Sunday. It's all about this blessing that the God of eternity who keeps the stars in their place, who has this earth spinning about 600 something thousand miles per hour around the sun. This earth, as we are talking, is going at 600 something thousand miles per hour. And not only that, it's also spinning around its own axis as it is spinning around the sun. And you now tell me that that God, for some reason, something is getting in the way of him getting you money to buy a pair of shoes. That he would need you to bring your five bucks. That's not the God of the Bible. A man of God is the one who teaches you the things of Christ. Otherwise, I don't care how big the following is. It's very easy to catch. It's very easy to catch. You just need to open your Bible and hear what they're saying. If their concern is not teaching you to know more about Jesus, they are not a man of God. It doesn't matter how many people are coming. It doesn't matter how many people are getting healed. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit has declared to us that it's all about building the church, in the knowledge of the Son of God. Because we are being conformed to the image of Christ. So for the Christian to render true worship to God, they need to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, without which they can't render true worship to him. And it is for this reason, when people don't know who Jesus is, they don't know how to talk to him. They don't know how to praise God for him. And so they think that prayer is about bubbling. Prayer is about people just saying all they want to God. Prayer is reduced to asking God to solve this political crisis, this economic crisis, this marriage crisis. And we had a night of prayer. And nothing about Jesus was taught in there. That is not prayer. <laughs> it's just people who have tired eyes in the morning. You are not praying. You have to worship God in truth. You have to worship God in truth. And God in Christ Jesus has opened a way for you to worship him in truth. Christ has been revealed that he 
may open the veil, the veil of the temple, the heavenly temple that prevented you from approaching God by yourself. Christ, when he was on the cross, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. It was broken in two, saying access to God had been opened. Access to God had been opened. And so the true way to worship God is to come to Christ. The true way of worshiping God is to come to Christ. That is the only true way of worshiping God. It is to worship God the Father in spirit and truth. And what does that mean? It means God the Father is the one that we worship. It means when we pray, we pray as our Father who art in heaven. Holy is thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And thy kingdom come. You are prioritizing the things of God. And God hears that. God hears that kind of prayer. And the way that we accomplish, the way that we accomplish worshiping is through the knowledge of truth. Jesus says, the Father requires you to worship him in truth and in spirit. But we are going to learn from John the Apostle that truth is not a set of propositional statements. Truth is not some statements that are true, like today is Sunday. According to John, that's not the truth that Jesus is talking about. John is going to tell us, Jesus saying in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. What is that saying? It is saying that truth is a person. Truth is a person. And for you to worship God in truth, you have to be in Christ. You have to know Christ. Christ is the door. He is the way. He is the way to God. He is the access to God. If you know the things of Christ, you have access to God. He grants you the right, the legal right for God to hear you. But there's more to the worship. John says the spirit and truth. So we have the son who is the truth. And we have the Holy Spirit. Remember Apostle John Apostle John is a Trinitarian apostle. Apostle John is introducing us to the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is working it out right now as we read this chapter. The Holy Spirit, according to Apostle Paul, teaches us how to pray. For we do not know how to pray. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches God's people 
how to pray in truth. So what is that saying? Jesus is saying, if you have to truly worship God, you have to know Jesus. And you have to have the Holy Spirit. So anyone who denies the Trinity, who denies that God is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is not a Christian. And they cannot worship God rightly. And they cannot come to God. Salvation requires the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praying to God, worshiping God, requires the Trinity. You pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? Jesus did not say, this is how you worship God. Jesus did not say, you worship God if you are a pious and humble man. Jesus did not say, bring your tithes and offerings if you have to render true worship to God. Guess what? Because the Jews were already doing these things. Right? The Jews were already giving their tithes and offerings. But Jesus comes and says, let me tell you about true worship. Let me tell you about true worship. True worship is not about what you do for God. It's about what you recognize about God. It's about what you know about God. So right now, sitting there, you can actually render true worship to God than someone who is feeding 1,000 people. Salvation is about Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. True worship is about Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we move away from that, and yet we have these popular preachers like T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes is not a Trinitarian. And because he's not a Trinitarian, he can never preach this gospel. He can't. And to be honest, it's very hard to even call him a Christian. Because he doesn't recognize Jesus for who he is. And if you don't recognize Jesus for who he is, then you haven't had a revelation of Jesus from God. And if you don't know who Jesus is, you're not born again. And if you're not born again, you're not saved. And this does not say you don't, have, you don't have a church. You can have a big church as you want. But we know where you stand by what you say about Jesus. So the ones that God accepts, the prayer that God accepts, does not come from those good men and women. It comes from those who stand on the piety and work and person of Jesus. That's how you come to Christ. That's how you come to Christ. So God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth because of his nature. His nature is spirit, not a spirit. You may have a translation that says a spirit. That's the wrong translation. It's supposed to say God is spirit. That's a better translation. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
spiritual things beget spiritual things. When it comes to spiritual things, you can only talk to God in the same manner, in the same way that God is. You talk to God through the Holy Spirit by His Son. Okay? The Holy Spirit is very important in our doctrine of prayer. The Holy Spirit is very important in our salvation. But this is very, very important because if we don't get this, you get entangled in a lot of nonsense that people will be calling, oh, we are worshiping. No, no, no. And then you ask them, who is Jesus? And then they deny Jesus. I'm like, okay, if you deny the person of Jesus, you're not worshiping anything. Yes, you are worshiping, but you don't know what you're worshiping. Woman, you worship, but you know not what. But an hour is coming, and now is. When true worshipers, we worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you. We glorify you. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and all that you have done for your people to give us understanding of worship, to understand that you alone are worthy of glory and honor, that you alone can be reached by your Son and through your Son and nobody else because Christ is the way he is the truth and the life and no one comes to you but by him whether in salvation whether in prayer whether in worship whatever it is that men need to get from you they have to come through Christ and Lord we thank you for that revelation to us that we may believe and know the things of Christ that we may render to you the worship that you deserve. And Lord, we pray and thank you for all that you have gathered this morning. Thank you for the teaching. And we pray, Lord, that you would increase the word in the hearts of your people and that you give hearing to all that shall listen to this message whenever it's played. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.